Hey, welcome, uh, welcome everybody. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church, and excited that you're here. Now, when you walked in this morning, hopefully you either picked up or were handed one of these worship guides. And uh, if you'll notice on the front, if you've been here for a while and you kind of understand that usually what we're teaching matches the graphic on the front, uh, that we're starting something new today. Uh, But it's even a little deceiving because if you've been here with us, you know that we've been walking verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And uh, and we finished up chapter one and are ready to start chapter two. And so what we're doing, instead of just going all the way through chapter two, since chapter two, Chapter 2 begins um, with a special narrative, a special story about Jesus and his ministry um, concerning the miracles that he performed. Um, We're going to kind of change things up a little bit, and we're going to take a look and a survey of the seven miracles that Jesus performs as recorded by John in his gospel. And so inside your worship guide, there's a schedule so you can see where we're going each week. Um, you know, we challenged all of all of our church at the beginning of this series um, to read the Gospel of John with us. If you read one chapter a day, it would take you 21 days. You could probably read a chapter, depending on the chapter and how much you wanted to stop and think about it, just pure reading it. You could probably do it in three or four minutes. Uh, if you wanted to read three chapters a day, if you wanted to spend about 15 minutes a day reading, uh, you could read the entire Gospel of John in one week. Um, because there's 21 chapters if you read three a day. And so we're challenging and encouraging our church to read along with us as we study. And even though it seems repetitive, like, okay, if I read three chapters a day, I finish it in a week, um, like, what am I supposed to do after the first week? And my challenge, my encouragement would be read it again. Um, Because what you'll start to see is the more that you read it and dive into it, the more you'll see um, themes that run throughout the Gospel of John. And you'll start to see um, some some of his common characteristics of his writing and how that helps to illuminate who Jesus is and what he came to do. Um, If you remember the thesis statement of the Gospel of John or his purpose found in John chapter 20, starting in verses uh, starting verse 30 and 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing so that we'll understand not only what Jesus did, but who he is. And and the secret in understanding who he is leads us to belief, which leads us to finding true life in him. And so we're going to continue being in the Gospel of John, although we're going to shift gears and we're not going to necessarily go verse by verse because we're going to scan through and look at the seven miracles that Jesus performs in this book. Now, why are we doing this? Well, for a couple reasons. Number one um, is because uh, John only includes seven. So here's what we know. First of all, we just quoted from uh, John chapter 20 where he said Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So here's what we know. Jesus did a lot more miracles than what John records. We also know that because if we read Matthew or Mark or Luke, we, we see Jesus performing miracles that John never mentions. So if Jesus did maybe hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of miracles, we don't, we don't really know. Why did John only choose seven? Well, one of the reasons is because seven is a powerful number uh, for first for a first century audience. So the original audience that John is writing to, um, they're a group of people who are accustomed to seeing numbers 
within a literary text and seeing the significance. For ancient people, writers and readers, seven was the number of completion, the number of perfection, the number of wholeness. So John records seven miracles about Jesus. He also records seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am fill in the blank, the bread of life, the light of the world. So so John is trying to paint a picture by including only seven of this complete, whole, perfect picture of who Jesus is, because he's trying to get us to understand not what's on the surface, but what's deeper. And that number seven, even though you and I would probably read through the Gospel of John and totally miss it, is significant for his first century audience. And another reason we're doing it is because of the very vocabulary that John uses. Uh, I don't know how your week went. Uh, I had a really good week this week. Um, Took off Thursday and uh, went on a two-day camping trip up in northern Wyoming. Uh, Now, if you've been here long, uh, it's not a surprise to know that I'm a nerd. And um, there's a few things that I geek out, nerd out about. Um, and not much of it has to do with TV. One of the TV shows I geek out over is The Walking Dead, and we've covered that before. We'll save the rest of that discussion for another day. Another show that I really enjoy uh, is a show, it's kind of a Netflix exclusive called Longmire. It's about a Wyoming sheriff um, who solves crime, and he's just a really cool dude. And so this show, the author is originally a set of books, that they then base the show off of. The author of these books lives in northern Wyoming, in Buffalo, Wyoming. And so they throw this, this festival once a year called the Longmire Festival. So um, my family and then the Harris family, we went up and camped for a couple of days and went to the Longmire Festival. And all the, <laughs> all, the, all the actors and actresses, they come out to this festival and you can meet them and hang out with them. And um, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And so we camped, and it was, it was great. I mean, it was like the perfect setting. We literally had our tent, tents like 10, 15 feet right off a creek. Um, Ryan brought a couple hammocks that we hung between trees that were just slightly leaning slightly over the edge and bank of the creek that we could just relax in and chill in that were in the shade. It was amazing. And so uh, we left yesterday, and we're driving home, and uh, Ryan or, or I, and I, excuse me, Ryan and I are in his truck, and then uh, L- Elena and Lindsay and the kids are, are in our van. So Ryan and I get up on the interstate. We're going to head out, and I don't know if you've been in Wyoming. There's a lot of antelope, um, not a lot of other things. And uh, so we get up on the interstate and realize we have less than a quarter of a tank of gas, which can mean significant things in Wyoming, a place like Wyoming. So we're starting to drive and going, and, and, and plus we had his truck loaded down. I mean, he had all the firewood, all the ice chests. Um, we took all of our bikes, and so we had six bikes loaded in uh, to his truck. And, you know, there's some good hills and stuff in Wyoming, right? And so we start driving, and it, the, the, the gas meter is dropping quick, like way faster than you would normally expect it to. And so we're at less than half of a quarter, less than a quarter of a tank, and it's dropping quickly. And we're waiting for a sign. We're waiting for a sign. And then we see one. And uh, we see that the next option for for stopping, Casey, Wyoming, is, uh, what was it, 45 miles, 46 miles, which, uh, as we were calculating, 
weren't sure if we had enough space, enough gas to actually get there. And so uh, love Wyoming because their speed limit is 80 miles an hour, which is amazing. But uh, we were going a little bit under that just to try to conserve some gas to see how long we could make this out. And um, and so every time we're coming up, you see one of those little green squares. You're like, okay, please tell me like that we have covered some significant mileage because uh, we are getting low. And, you know, then you pass it and you're like 25 miles. And we're like, okay, we're halfway between where we started and where we're going. And we're now less than an eighth of a tank. And so we're waiting for that sign. We're waiting for the little green square to come and tell us. And then the, 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 the light comes on, right? And we're still 16 miles out. And so we're like, oh, boy. Now, fortunately, the story ends well uh, in that we made it. I don't know how we had to have been running on fumes just because of how quickly that was following. And I, the last at least 15, maybe 20 miles, we were at E and the light was on. But, but we made it. But those signs were so precious because every time we came up to one, it told us uh, what we needed. It was pointing us towards something. And what's interesting is in the Gospel of John, John never uses the word miracle. Not once. You won't find it anywhere in his Gospel, neither in your English translation or even in the original Greek text. He never uses the word miracle. He only uses the word sign. He's the only Gospel writer to do it. Because John wants us to know that the miracles are there to point us to something bigger, something deeper. This isn't just about recording a story. It's not just about giving us information about Jesus. There's a reason John chose seven. He could have chosen 10,000. He chose seven. Seven's a special and important number, but the seven that he did choose are also important because they point us to something about Jesus. And so we're going to take a survey, a walk, a journey through the seven miracles of Jesus. And as we start to lay them side by side by side, we start to get a special, a new, a different picture of Jesus each time we do it. And it's, a, it's going to be, a, a, I think, a rewarding and an intriguing journey uh, as we go systematically and set them side by side together. And so if you have your Bibles with you today, you can open up to John chapter 2. That's where we'll be. If you're using one of our Bibles, um, uh, hopefully uh, you'll be able to find your way quickly. Feel free to use the table of contents if you need to, if that makes it easier. If uh, while we're just talking about those Bibles, um, if you don't own a Bible or you don't like the one you do own, I want you to feel free to take one of those as our gift to you today. Uh, those are great little Bibles. Um, they've got aside from the fact it's the same version that I teach out of. Uh, there's a lot of good extra information and articles um, for your reading. While if you want to read about uh, more about how to read the Bible, where the Bible came from, things like that, there's some great articles in there. Uh, or maybe you've got your Bible, or if you want to pull out your phone or your tablet and just open up the Bible app, that's a whole lot faster and easier to get where you're going that way. So we're going to be in John chapter two as we begin to look at the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus performed. So I'm going to read about 11 verses together, uh, and, and we'll just read the whole story. Then we'll go back, and we'll just kind of point out and dissect a few things. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the text is also going to be up on the screen for you as well. And it says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So that's a region that's north of Jerusalem, kind of on the northern Israel side, um, up, up to the north, if, if that's interesting to you, if you want to 
know where this is taking place. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so what I want to do is I want to walk back to the beginning and point out a few things. Uh, make a few observations that I think are significant because not only did John choose to include this miracle, which is significant, the details from within the story that he chose to include are significant. The, the fact that he that in 11 verses, he tells us some very specific things. I think paint a picture for what John is trying to communicate and what sign it's pointing, how the sign is pointing us to a reality about Jesus. And so every detail that John includes is important. We're not going to look at every detail, but we are going to look at a few of them and hopefully a few that maybe you thought uh, you saw, thought were unusual or had questions about. And so the, the, the stage is set. They're at a wedding. The wine runs out, which is a crisis. So not only is it a crisis because you don't want that to happen, but from an ancient first century perspective, it was a total embarrassment on the party host. Um, the fact that he ran out of wine means that he wasn't prepared um, and, and it's a symbol of being a really unprepared, unconsiderate, terrible host. This is a huge embarrassment on the bridegroom, or as we would call him today, just the groom. Huge embarrassment for him. This would be so, socially damaging to his reputation. As a host, when you wanted to, um, j- to provide a welcome to someone, you would make sure that they always had enough wine. So if you come to my house for dinner... Uh, as a host, I'm going to pour the wine for you. And in this first century, for this first century audience, uh, when this took place, as a host, my number one job is to make sure that your cup is always full. If I let your cup run dry, uh, it either means two things. Uh, we ran out of wine or you've run out of your welcome. Your welcome has run out. Um, and so that was a sign that it was time for you to go home if I let your cup get empty. So for this bridegroom to run out of wine was a crisis. It was a social crisis for him. And so this is the stage that has been set. When the wine runs out, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and tells him, hey, there's no more wine. And here's his response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, here's probably some things that we need to mention and point out. First of all, if you ever said to your wife or your mother, uh, the damage is on your own head, the blood's on your own hands. 
All right. Um, now, it seems brunt, uh, kind of blunt and forceful and near rude when we read it. Um, I, I'll tell you this. From an ancient perspective, it is blunt, but it's not rude. Um, actually, the, the word here used can mean both woman or wife. And so if this had been his wife, which Jesus didn't have one, but who had come up, we would have translated this wife. Well, we translated woman because uh, that's what fits the context. And from this perspective, uh, it's not it's not rude, not like you and I would take it. If if your mother or wife walks up and says something and you say woman. All right. Uh, not not the same. However, it is very blunt. It is very blunt because he didn't have to say it. He could have said, mother, what does this have to do with me? That would have been a perfectly appropriate first century response in this time, in this circumstance, in this situation. But he doesn't. He specifically chooses a more distant term as opposed to mother. So what is he doing here? What, what, what is Jesus trying to do? Why would he state this and state it so bluntly and directly, clearly in front of everyone, John heard it and was able to record it. The servants who were there uh, were standing and listening because as you, you'll see in just a second, she turns as soon as she has this conversation with Jesus, she turns to the, to the servants who are listening and says, do what he tells you to. People are there. People are listening. Why would he be so blunt? Well, there's a number of factors that go into it. But I think what Jesus is starting to do is Notice what John says. This is his first sign. This is his first miracle. This is the beginning in some aspects of his public ministry. And I think Jesus is starting to create a separation of what it means and what matters most when it comes to being in relationship with him and a relationship with his father in heaven. I want to point out a few other texts that give us a perspective on how Jesus uh, interacts with his family and and we'll kind of get a broad view and tie it all together and luke 11 verse 27 uh, this is an interaction with the crowd um, it says this as he said these things a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed but he said blessed rather are those who hear the word of god and keep it jesus is starting to create this distance between him and his his family relationships on this earth. Trying to create a separation so that people begin to understand there's no shortcut to being in a relationship with Jesus. You can't network your way through friends and family and other relationships to get closer to Jesus. Mark chapter 3 uh, beginning in verse 32 and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called to him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you and he answered them who are my brother who are my mother and my brothers and looking about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother Jesus is creating a separation. That you don't get any special treatment because of who you know. 
and who you're connected with. It's not about being a family member of Jesus. It's about being a follower of Jesus. And even his own mother is included in that category. Now, that doesn't mean to say that Jesus doesn't see something special about his mother. Um, When Jesus went to the cross and was nailed and hung up, he made seven statements from the cross, uh, which is amazing if you understand the physical um, aspects of a crucifixion. And so when your wrists are nailed to the cross beam uh, and you're raised up, 100% of the weight of your body rests on your on your wrists where they drove the nails in they wouldn't have actually driven them in through the hand your hand couldn't support the weight that the nails would have been driven in into the wrist most individuals who were crucified died from asphyxiation meaning they couldn't breathe because the only way to breathe with all the pressure on your wrists transferred into your shoulders you could not exhale so the only way to exhale was to actually pull yourself up with all the weight on your wrist. You had to actually pull yourself up so you could exhale, take another breath, and then you had to let yourself back down. Eventually, you would grow, it would become too painful. You'd grow too tired. You couldn't pull yourself up anymore, and you'd asphyxiate. That's how most people on a, on a cross died. If you know much about physiology, uh, you have to exhale in order to speak. So every time Jesus spoke, he had to pull himself up by the nails to say something. And he made seven statements from the cross. One of them is recorded in John chapter 19. It says this, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, he's talking about the author of this gospel, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So from the cross... Moments before his death and more excruciating pain than you and I can ever understand. Matter of fact, we get our word excruciating from the Latin word excrucio, which in Latin literally means from the cross. That's where we get our word excruciating from. And in all that pain, he pulls himself up to make sure his mother's taken care of after he's gone. Because in that society, a widow. And, and a woman with no husband and no male sons to take care of her, she was in trouble. She couldn't get a job. And so from the cross, he's making sure his mother's going to be okay when he's done. And so he loves his mother. He cherishes her. But he's trying to create a separation that just being in a special relationship and networking with Jesus or networking with other people doesn't get you special treatment. It's not about who you know, it's about who you follow. It's about following Christ. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I think that's the key to this whole story. I think that's the, the key that'll kind of unlock the big picture and then especially tell us why this particular miracle is so significant. What does he mean that my hour has not yet come? What is he trying to say? What does that mean? Let me give you some perspective. Look at a number of scriptures. These will be on the screen. I'm going to go kind of quickly, so it may be easier to look on the screen. John chapter 7, verse 30. 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This happens several times in Jesus' ministry where the religious leaders are trying to arrest him because he's a threat to their authority and their power. John 8, 20 says this. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 12, starting in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is starting to paint a picture for them about what the hour looks like. Just a few verses later, John 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then Mark chapter 12. This is moments before he's arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night praying with his disciples. And he keeps asking them to pray with him and they keep falling asleep. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking a rest? And rather than getting on to them or making this a teachable moment, uh, all that has passed. He says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man, which is his favorite term for himself, Jesus' favorite term for himself, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He literally says this as the soldiers are walking into the garden to arrest him. It's enough. We're not going to go through this anymore. The hour has come. Jesus was trying to prepare both his disciples and his mother and those listening that This is not my hour. Whatever cool thing you're about to see, this is not why I came. It's interesting that Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. But he's immediately going to fix the problem. He's immediately going to do what his mom asked him to do in the first place. But he makes this statement. My hour is not yet come. This is not while I'm here. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to fix things for you. I'm not here to work miracles. I'm not a magician. That's not why I came. That's not my purpose. He was going to do it anyways. But he wanted people to understand that this was not his moment. This is not the moment. People were about to be impressed. His popularity was only going to grow. Usually we think of Jesus as having 12 followers, the 12 disciples. We kind of think it was a small band of of, of people that followed him. But in reality, almost everywhere Jesus went, there are thousands of people. I mean, you can imagine if somebody even walked through Aurora today who was raising people from the dead, like, I kind of want to see it. Like, so you can imagine in first century, no Netflix, no Longmire to watch, no Longmire festival days. When a guy comes through town and a man that you've known your whole life as being blind suddenly can see. A man who spent his whole life begging because he was born lame. You watch him walking and dancing down the street. When you hear about this man who people say no one has ever taught like him and he walks through your small town of 200 people, you're going to go see. Thousands of people followed Jesus around where he went. 
But Jesus wanted him to know, this is not what I came to do. I'm not here to entertain you. I came for a bigger purpose. And then I think John gives us one of the most subtle, but perhaps most important details in this whole story that is so easy to miss. Right after Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He's communicating. This is not why I came. I want you to, we'll go back. His mother, verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And this is what John tells us. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. It's a subtle detail that means the world. Jesus did not take six jars for drinking water and turn them into wine. It still would have been equally impressive. He took six jars that were washing jars. It was bath water. Because a part of the Jewish ritual and religious rules said that in order to be clean, you had to follow these certain steps. And one of those was a ritual washing when you walked into a place before you ate. You see, Jesus enters into a time in history where everything about being in relationship with God was built upon rules. You must do this, you must not do this, and that's all that matters. So Jesus comes in, and he takes six jars of bath water that are designed for bringing symbolic purification. Jars of water you would never drink. However many hundreds of people are in attendance at this wedding, enough to deplete the wine, have all been in that jar, in those jars. He says, fill them to the brim. And it's from these religious jars that were supposed to symbolically bring you cleansing. He says, I'll take them from dirty bath water and I'll make it into the best wine you've ever tasted. I'll take jars that used to represent man's attempt to impress God by following rules. And I'll turn them into the sweetest red wine that one day will represent how real purification comes. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus sitting with his disciples, sharing their last meal, one point takes a cup. He says, this wine, it now represents my blood that's poured out for you. The Bible says that it's through the crimson blood of Christ that we're made clean, that we're made white, that we're made pure as snow. He says, I'll take what used to represent man's attempt to be pure. And I'll make it into the greatest representation of what one day I will do to make you pure. I'll take this dirty bath water and I'll make it into the sweetest, most precious wine you've ever tasted. I'll take what most people would consider worthless, only worthy to be dumped out. And when I get a hold of it, it changes everything. It's through his crimson blood that was spread. It's through the red cup that we now remember what Christ did. Jesus told his disciples on that night, 
Take this cup that represents my blood. Take this bread that's broken for you that represents my broken body. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And for the last 2,000 years, followers of Christ have been taking the cup and taking the bread as a representation of what it means to be right with God. It's not about networking relationships. It's about following Christ. It's not about what we do for God to impress Him. It's about what God has done for us. That real, true, spiritual purification comes not in what we do, but in what Christ has done. And this is the first sign that Jesus performs. John says this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus is not a miracle worker. He's not a magician. He's not an entertainer. These miracles, these signs point us to something deeper, something, something much more rich that matters so much more. The focus of these seven weeks isn't just on what Jesus did at one point in time. It's on who He is, what He's done, and what He wants to do in us. Will you pray with me? God, I thank You for our time together this morning. And ultimately, Jesus, I thank You for what You've done not just in changing water to wine, not just in doing something that seems entertaining and mysterious, but I thank you that you have accomplished what we can't. That despite all of our best efforts, we always fall short. We're never good enough. We're like the groom in this story who runs out of wine. No matter how hard we prepare, it seems as though it doesn't always go right. We fall short. We feel embarrassed. We don't do good enough. But you have done all that is necessary. By going to the cross, you've paid our sin penalty and provided purification and freedom for us thank you if you will keep your eyes closed for a moment so as we move into a time of just prayer and response I'm going to ask you to think on what we've talked about today to think about what aspect of this story and the life and ministry of Jesus hit you the hardest. I think everybody in here is at a different place. Some of you struggle with uh, filling the need to do everything yourself. You feel like it's always up to you. The weight is always on your shoulders do enough, to be good enough.
question to your heart today is that you're not good enough and that you won't be. You can follow all the rules you want, but you'll still fall short. Because it's not about what you do for God, it's about what God has done for us. And that Jesus has stepped in to do what these religious laws could not do. He, through his blood, has provided true, real, lasting, eternal purification. Some of you, maybe your struggle isn't in feeling that weight. Some of you feel the weight that feel worthless. You feel like you have nothing to offer. You look at your past and you're embarrassed and ashamed. Jesus took nothing. He took dirty bath water and turned it into the best something. Jesus can do that in your life. He can take those things most people would want to discard and throw out and make them into the best. And that's what he wants to do in your life. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who your family is. You can't network your way to Jesus. You can't network your way away from him. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. He can transform. Lord, thank you. Continue to move, continue to speak.